Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tired of reading news stories with catchy headlines but no substance? Check out The Information. The Information is a publication that breaks the most important news and trends about technology. They've published hundreds of stories on Uber, Snap, Facebook, and more. For access to high-quality journalism, try The Information. Go to theinformation.com SPP to sign up for The Information's free weekly newsletter and get five free days of their afternoon tech briefing. That's theinformation.com SPP the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp, coming at you. You know, this week, we're talking about many things dealing with work, specifically this idea of culture. You know, the idea of building a great culture. It's everywhere. And I don't want to disparage it. It's very important. In fact, I've spoke about it numerous times, and the company that I work for is built around building a great culture. But at the same time, it can seem cliche. And even if we do hear something new about it, is it just lip service? Well, we're going to be really getting deep in this idea of culture today. How do you build a great culture at work? How do you become part of a great team? How do you seek out work and people that you like? What happens when boredom kicks in at a job? And much more. This week on the show, we are talking to Mike Ronglin. Mike was the former head of learning and development at Facebook. 
He also worked with Sheryl Sandberg to develop Facebook's Managing Unconscious Bias program. Mike is now the founder of Multiple Hats Management, a consultancy focused on building leadership at every level of an organization. He's also the author of the brand new book, This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto. I really wanted to have Mike on because I do learning and development for a living. I understand the nuance behind the business, the importance of it, and also the difficulty. And so to speak with somebody who has just led L&D at a company like Facebook is really incredible. I mean, he was one of the founding members of the learning and development team at Facebook. He spent six and a half years building all things learning, onboarding, manager development, hard conversations, etc. And we'll talk about that in the episode. So if you like talking about work, learning about work, or even sometimes complaining about work, this is probably the episode for you. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check us out. Tell a friend. You know, who, who out there do you know? Think in your head right now. Who do I know that listens to podcasts? I'm going to just drop them a note and say, hey, found a great show or a great episode and send them one of ours. Let's get into it. Our episode with Mike Ronglin as we talk about his new book. This is now your company. Enjoy. You have a unique background, as we were just discussing, Facebook being part yeah. of that. Yeah. Tell us about how you got to where you are now. And my other question is, when did you realize you wanted to be in this industry? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Those are big ones. So the first one, I think, you know, I, when I started my first job out of college, I worked for an insurance company called USAA. Great organization. It's a it's a financial services company, insurance and stuff for for active duty. At the time, it was active duty military officers. And my dad had been an officer in the Air Force, and I really just loved the company. And they were hiring, and they hired me. And so I went to work there, and I really discovered uh, a kind of a nerdy passion for insurance of all things, and underwriting, and critical thinking, and. Um, one of the things, though, that I that kind of emerged as I was doing that job is that I was unconventional. Like I would, you know, I would always be able to have fun and get, you know, the people that would call in military officers to like laugh and loosen up as we were talking about, you know, auto insurance. And they're like, well, this kid's kind of a weirdo, but like the members love him and his accuracy's high and everything's really great. This isn't a traditional approach, but it seems to be working. And so as I kind of moved up the ranks in the insurance world at USAA, they started having me, you know, mentor people and teach them. And what I found was in that first experience after college, I was like, wow, I really actually enjoy helping other people, not just necessarily how to be more like me. I don't think that was my goal even then. I think it was the goal was to help them be more like them so that, you know, when you don't, when you call in there's a commercial on TV right now where somebody calls a security company and gets put on hold a bunch of times. And then when she finally gets to a live person, she's like, my, my home was just robbed. And the person's like, Oh, that's the wrong department. I need to transfer you. Like that was my worst <laughs> nightmare was that somebody would be so robotic and so programmed in their job that they couldn't figure out how to actually be a human being. And so my first kind of training jobs started at USAA, helping people figure out how to be, you know, more comfortable and more themselves when they were talking to people about, in, you know, insuring a house. 
Um, and from there, it just, I, I started uh, graduate school while I was still at USAA and I met a woman that worked at Intel. Um, at, and we went through the program together and about halfway through, she convinced me to make the leap from insurance to technology. And it just, it kind of started from there. I, I had the kernel of, you know, understanding that I really enjoyed work when I was helping people. I really enjoyed work when I was helping people figure out how to be authentic. And I was really enjoying work when I had an opportunity to not just teach, but really get in and learn a bunch of stuff first um, and kind of break it down and make it practical so that the academia behind it could stay behind the curtain, but the practicality of it would be um, front and center. And so that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And then I just kind of did it. I stayed, once I came to Intel, I kind of, for the most part, stayed in the tech world. And so I did, you know, I tell people all the time, I've done hardware, software, and internet. So I've covered all the bases. Now, were you drawn to the tech world or did you stay in the tech world because of the the pace and the culture? I mean, we'll get into it, but I know you were talking about you yeah. love the speed at Facebook. Is that the thing yeah. that kept you there? It's funny. I, I really joined the tech world first and foremost, because I hated wearing shirts and ties to work. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that I hated about USAA and I mean, it was probably the only thing I hated. It was a great company. Um, was that, you know, we worked essentially in a fancy call center and we sat around in, you know, dress shirts and ties Monday through Thursday. Right. Um, and then, you know, you had casual Friday. I'm like, well, if, if the, if the belief that, you know, being, in jeans is going to make you super unprofessional, then why would any company let their employees be super unprofessional 20% of the week? Right. Like you're what, what's the real reason behind this? And so when I went for my first interview at Intel, I was like blown away by the fact that the senior most person that I was interviewing with was, was wearing, you know, jorts. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was, it was warm that day, but I was like, oh, wow, these people not only get to do really amazing work, but they don't have to put any thought whatsoever into, you know, superficial stuff like wearing a shirt and tie. And right. so it, it was a shallow reason. I mean, the job was really compelling, too, but that was kind of my first exposure to like, wow, you can actually just be yourself the way that you are at home, even if it's just dressing a similar way, but you can dress the same way in at work and at home, that, it, that seemed to me like a, a, an entry point into being able to just be yourself. And then, yeah, like what I just, I got addicted to the speed of getting things done quickly, not a lot of bureaucracy. If, if you can imagine going from an insurance company to a tech company, it's night and day. You go from having limits of authority and very clearly defined things that you can and can't do to you know, everything was kind of a, a free for all um, and experimentation was more important than compliance. Right, right. Well, and then you made your way to a company that a few people might have heard of, Facebook. Yeah. And it looks like you, let's see, you started there in 2012. So 11. Facebook, 2011. Okay. So Facebook yeah. by then was Facebook, but yeah. they were still private and, and I know they were much smaller. So here's what I'm wondering, you know, given you had a unique front row seat to a company that is changing the world, you know, essentially I look at it as the largest company in the world based on user base, obviously, and one of the most influential, if not the most influential. So you have a lot of rights, roles and all that going into it. What was the transition like from when you first got there? What were you trying to build to when you left? What was trying to be built? 
So, you know, it's interesting when I was, even when I was interviewing, um, I, you know, I got the sense that it was just a very different type of company. And yeah, I mean, if you look at where Facebook is as a company now, and you look at it where it was when I was, you know, starting to interview and then joined, there were about 670-ish million people um, using the site globally. Uh, today, that number, I think, is 2.2 billion. So it's grown almost, you know, three and a half times that. The company had about 1,700 employees when I started, about 25,000 when I left. Uh, just massive growth. And we acquired Instagram. We went public. Uh, just lots of, like, massive things. People were getting married and having babies. Like, I think the first year, there were probably 100 or so kids born to employees. And by the time I left, I'm sure it was probably... It's several thousand a year. So not just the company was changing, but everybody's lives were changing. And the amount of the ubiquity of Facebook, when I started, a lot of people thought, well, that's a really cool job, but they're never going to make any money. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I remember those the, days. Right. And still to this day, people love to say, which I actually use this when I teach unconscious bias because unconscious behavior uh, people love to say, I don't know how Facebook makes any money. I've never clicked on an ad. <laughs> um, yeah, you actually have. Yeah. <laughs> and you've clicked, you've clicked on a lot of them and you've seen a lot of them, but it was funny because as a company, I didn't admittedly understand exactly how the company was going to be successful, but I, I made the jump for two reasons. One, I really thought the leadership team at the company was really compelling. They had very smart people and, one of the people that I interviewed with, because I originally, the, the first job that we had discussed, uh, I passed on. And I was living in Chicago at the time. I was very happy living here. I had a good life. And my thought process was, if I'm going to make this big move uh, from a city that I love to a city that I don't really love, um, it's going to have to be you know, job of a lifetime thing. And the way that they positioned it was, well, you can either continue trying to shift and impact culture uh, at a huge company that's 40 years old, or you can come help us get it right from pretty early on. And for people that do what we do for a living, that's like crack. <laughs> like, right. How are you going to say no to an opportunity to see if all of the things that you've been trying to teach people to undo and do better, if you had an opportunity to help them maybe get it right from, from very early on in the company's history, especially a company that, you know, in, in, intuitively, I think I just knew was going to be a, incredibly consequential. Um, you can't turn that down. So I didn't. Hmm. I want to talk about the size of Facebook and the influence of Facebook makes it important. And, and it makes it important, I mean, for this conversation, because I want to talk to you about mm -hmm. what you saw in terms of enjoying work. Because yep. when, when you and I first started talking, you said, all I did was work. And yep. I got to be honest, especially now, that is the last thing I want to do. I don't Correct. care in any, in any function. So, yeah. you know, for some people in order to enjoy their job, it's gotta be a thing that that's all they want to do for others. Yep. It's a flexibility for others. I mean, we've all, we know yeah. of Dan Pink and all this. So in yep. everything you learned and seeing so many people and so many motivations, what have you yeah. gathered you have to do to enjoy where you work? So I think there's. I think there's a couple of things. One is, 
especially if you look at all of the research uh, and even in a company's own internal polling or research and org health surveys on younger workers especially, but I think younger workers have infected the older workers that they work with, everybody wants to feel a sense of purpose, right? That the work that they're doing, whether it's, you know, tons and tons of hours or lack of flexibility, the compromises that we make, and we all make them uh, to, to, to work, the, the core thing underneath all of that that drives it is a sense of purpose and connection to that purpose in the work that you do. So I think one of the things that, especially in the early days when I started, everybody was super, super passionate about connecting the world. Uh, it had never been done before. There was no company that had ever been able to say, yeah, we created the world's first completely connected online community. And we didn't know what that was going to look like or how hard it was going to be or any of the stuff that was going to really pop up along the way. But everybody was really driven by that. And I think so that's one, having a very clear connection to the company's purpose, whatever that purpose was. Remember uh, when we started talking, I was talking about USAA, right. a completely different company than Facebook. And I was so completely connected to what they were trying to do. Uh, there were very unique needs that military people uh, faced when trying to get insurance uh, because they were constantly moving around. Their risk profile was constantly changing. And USAA looked at that uh, as an opportunity and said, you know, if we create a, a community of people that have similar challenges and issues, we can create a very unique risk profile and we can be the company to serve that audience. And I was, my dad was a military officer, so I really connected to, to that and the, the service and they, you know, encouraged people to stay on the phone as long as they could instead of telling them, you know, get off the phone in 30 seconds or we're going to ding your pay. Mm -hmm. So even when it was a, an insurance company and I was 22, I instinctively knew that being committed to what the company was overall trying to do was an important first step. And then how I fit into that, I would figure out later. So mm -hmm. I think that's the first part. The second part is, and I don't know if you've found this in, in your work, but I found over and over and over again that when I ask people to tell me what their strengths are, they really struggle to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at Marcus Buckingham's definition of a strength, a lot of people think strength means ability, right? Oh, well, I'm really good at this. Great, but do you love doing that? Yes. Will you love yes. doing that 40 hours a week? And oftentimes the answer to that is different. We all have things that we're good at and that we don't want to rely on for a paycheck. And we all have things that we're bad at, but we love anyway. And so I think one of the things that was really incumbent upon us as a company, but was also incumbent upon the people that we're interviewing, uh, was to know what are those things that I am uniquely gifted at um, and really passionate about. And that if I combine my unique ability and my passion to a connection to the company and its purpose, mm. you know, get out of the way. Yeah. And I think... But but that require nobody will, as Marcus likes to say, and I love to quote, nobody will ever know your strengths better than you do because they're yours. And because passion is half of it, other people can see your ability, but you can only see what's driving that ability. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people mistake being good at something as being strong at something. And so they pursue things that they might be good at, 
but get really confused by the fact that like, well, I'm really good at this. Why is this so completely unfulfilling? Yep. And usually if you dig not even very deep below the surface, you'll find they either don't care about the organization that they're helping through their contribution or they're good at it and they really care about the organization, but there's no, there's no passion for it. Hmm. And it really is that trifecta that I think people need to, to look for. And conversely, if you, if, if when somebody says, you know, tell me what you're better at than a million people and you get really flustered and uncomfortable, then you have some work to do, especially if the same people could ask you, you know, tell me something that you're bad at and 50 things readily come. <laughs> uh, it's just, it, we're wired to kind of sabotage ourselves. And I think I read about that in the book that I've been in a position that I was really good at the work and I was really committed to the company, but I hated what I was doing. And I didn't realize until years after I'd left that I had actually architected the perfect job for me to hate and didn't realize, of course, you know, I blamed everybody else, my boss, the company, the economy and everything when I left. And I didn't realize until many years later, like, oh, no, it was actually me. I did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's a lot there. And I think that's a really great trifecta that you highlighted. I want to make sure we we kind of concisely get that. So it's uh, a job yep. that you are essentially good at skills wise. You want yep. to be good at it and you want to do it for the company you're in. Yeah. Approximately. Okay. Yep. Good at it, passionate about it, and it has to be useful to somebody else. Okay, great. Um, those and, are the three. And you know, one of the things that people ask a lot, even in my line of work, and so I'd be interested to get yours is, well, how do you find those things? And that's a very long conversation. I'm not going to ask for you to define all three, but specifically yeah. what you said about <clears throat> strengths. I have found that you just have to try things and you'll go, wow, yeah. everything I've done thus far has, has brought me to this strength. And you have yes. to, the hardest part is recognize it. So yeah. what would you say to those that are out there going, I, I don't know. I mean, I've doing, been doing this job 5, 10, 15 years. I think I'm good at a few things. Where to start yeah. to go down the right path? So because, because of strength is something that you're good at and you're passionate about, one of the very visible signs of it is the passage of time, right? So if you're sitting at your desk working away and you, you look up and a few hours have gone by and you thought, oh, wow, I thought I just got here. It's already time for lunch. That's a sign. Uh, whether you call it, you know, being in flow or being in the zone or, or, you know, playing to your strengths. I think there's lots of different people have had lots of different ways of articulating it. But one of the signs is that you just kind of lose yourself in the work. And one of my favorite interview questions, and anybody can ask themselves, especially if you're looking at, you know, making a change to your job and you're looking at a job description, one of the things that I always ask myself and I encourage other people to do the same is to just describe your perfect day at work. What would you be doing? Uh, and if you're able to really, if you able, are able to really reflect on that, not just give a cursory answer, but really think if I had the power to architect my perfect day at work, how would I spend my time? The answer to that question is going to be things that are that are strong for you, either because they're already at that peak level of, of ability and commitment and applicability or because your ability is there uh, or your ability is getting there, but your commitment is really high or that you just have a really strong appetite to try. Um, one of the things that I think people constantly misunderstand uh, about strengths is that that they're all known. 
I, you know, if you've ever had somebody say, wow, you're really good at that. And you had no idea. Yep. You basically had a strength that you'd probably just never tried to leverage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of mine at Facebook, and now I've written a whole book on it was culture. I never really thought much about the influence that I as an individual had on culture. But when I look back at all of my companies, one of the things that was just consistent across the board was I was always trying to get people to connect to their contribution or their lack of contribution to the company at large. And when I got to Facebook, because Facebook's culture was one of those big things that I really connected with as a candidate and that I was really passionate about, I thought, well, if this is one of the reasons I'm coming to the company, then I'm going to have to really make a concerted effort to help shape it. And so I came in as a learning and development person. And I think when I left, uh, I left with not just being a learning and development guy, but I think most of the people that knew me at Facebook would describe me as a culture carrier, which is why it's in the title of the book. So right. all of that, but just paying attention. So many people are just on autopilot and, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's important to make a paycheck, right? None of us is without bills. Right. It's important to, you know, be able to uphold other responsibilities. Those things are all important. But if you want a sustainable experience and you want to do your best work at with the lowest amount of, I hate this, friction, you have to pay attention to uh, something that a lot of us aren't comfortable talking about, which is emotional responses to the work that we do. Right. Well, and emotional responses are something that I think we have taught ourselves to not pay attention to. And that yeah, actually and to suppress. Right. And that now it leads to my next question, which is you mentioned this idea of autopilot and everything. Uh, yep. I, everyone I know has has fallen victim to this at some point. We live in a world where specialization is key. And so with yeah. specialization comes just doing the same thing over and over again. And so yep. what I've always struggled with is, yeah, I like this or I'm good at this. But even yep. that make me do it five days in a row and I'm, I'm done. So right. the balance is companies want people to stick around, but you're yep. seeing, especially in Silicon Valley, people leaving primarily, I think, not necessarily out of boredom, but out right. of just sickness with the same thing. We seek variety, many of us. So what's the yep. solution there for all the people going, yeah, I like this part of my job. I just don't want to do it 50 hours a week. Yeah. And, or I don't want to do it for 50 years. Exactly. So that, that was the first major shift. And I think tech in particular as an industry has played a big role in that. Uh, people don't go, most people I don't think go to companies anymore with the intention that they are going to stay for their entire, there's no benefit. I mean, look at all of the companies that had pension programs that are basically gutting them just to stay alive. Right. And so all, all of these people that have gone to companies and stayed for or intended to stay for 20, 30, 40 years. And suddenly one of the biggest benefits of that tenure and longevity is gone. So I think one of the first things to kind of disappear was this notion that I'm going to go to a company and stay there for my entire career. Uh, I don't think if you ask anybody under the age of 30 that many people are going to say, oh, yeah, I want to go work for no matter how great the company is. I don't think anybody intends to stay for that long. I think the other thing that we're that we're seeing, and I, I've certainly experienced this personally, is that it's it's actually not necessarily in the company's best interest <laughs> for you to stay if you don't want to be there. In fact, it's not in their best interest at all. It's not in anybody's best interest right. 
but we tell ourselves that you know leaving a job or leaving a company is uh, is indicative of a failure or that something bad happened. And when I left Facebook, one of the primary questions that I got was and that I anticipated was that people were going to assume that I was leaving because I didn't like the company anymore or I didn't uh, like the team or I disagreed with the press. And something negative had to have been the impetus for me leaving. And in reality, it's one of the reasons that that's the last chapter in the book. In reality, I left because I wanted to go do something else. I had learned a ton at Facebook that was going to enable me to do that. And the last thing I wanted to do was be a drag on where, you know, a company that I really cared about and that invested six and a half years of my life helping to build. I didn't want to be a drag on where I knew they needed to go next. I just knew that I wasn't going to be the best person to help them get there. Mm. And I think the, the second major shift, the first one was, as I said, I think moving away from working at one company forever. I think the second shift needs to be, uh, uh, Relooking at at the individual level and the company level, what is a meaningful retention goal, right? Like, how much time should we expect somebody to stay in a role or in a company versus you know, should we not look at how long they stay, but what they're able to accomplish while they're there? And I think that with that mindset, when I, I left the company, just as in love with it on my last day as I did on my first, but I also knew that I had done what I came there to accomplish and I was ready to move on to the next thing. Mm. And I think that that's just going to continue happening more and more. We, we talked a little bit before this about the gig economy. I think that's going to become more and more prevalent as well is that people that really want to hone in and, and focus and specialize uh, but don't want to do the same thing for the same company, maybe the thing that keeps it a strength for you is doing the, uh, the similar set of tasks, but for five different companies with different missions and different purposes. And there's a lot of layers to a strength that go beyond just ability and passion um, in terms of what drives that passion or what makes that ability unique. So there's a lot of layers to it. Coco Chanel, Martha Stewart, Julia Child. You know these amazing women and how successful they are, but do you know their real stories? Do you know their failures and how they overcame those obstacles in order to achieve success? Do you know the business principles they held? If you're a fan of Smart People Podcast, you'll love the Great Women of Business podcast from Parcast. Focusing on little-known details, Great Women in Business explains how Debbie Field started her empire at age 20. The controversy behind Chanel Number no. 5 and how Coco Chanel was one of the first to ever understand branding as we know it today. The 12-episode series just premiered starting June 5th. Find episodes on Ruth Handler, co-founder of Mattel and inventor of the Barbie doll. Brownie Wise, Martha Stewart, and more every Tuesday. Visit Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Great Women of Business. Again, that's Great Women of Business, or visit parcast.com slash business to start listening. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash business to listen now. Now back to the show. Yeah, there are. And and that's why I think it's so difficult and out there doing what you're doing now with your your consultancy. So I'm assuming it's your own company, right? It is. And are you primarily focusing now on 
unconscious bias, which we're going to talk about, or is it, are you really just saying, here's everything I know, and then going in and, and teaching those things? It's, it's both. So yes, it is. For right now, I'm a one man show. The, okay. I think that's probably going to change in the near future. Mm -hmm. But I, when I started the company, I kind of started it with a strengths based purpose slash mission statement. I wanted to do, I had three criteria. I wanted to do impactful work so that it had, it had meaning to it. That was meaningful to me, not just to the company that I was doing it for that. I wanted to do it with people that I could learn from and have fun with. Um, and that, you know, really kind of expanded my horizons in some way. Those were really the main criteria that I was looking for. And the interesting thing is that it really has been a little bit of everything. There are some organizations that really are trying to figure out how to become more, uh, I guess, an, an employer of choice for a younger audience, especially, but an older company. So they're Every company is basically a tech company now. Even if you're not a tech company, mm -hmm. you're a tech company, right? You have to have engineers to build your apps and to run your web interfaces. And so every company out there, whether they are a tech company as a primary focus or not, has to have a tech component to it. And a lot of those companies, especially, you know, companies that are 7,500 plus years old, don't necessarily have a core strength in being a, a great place to work for that demographic. So there are companies that want help with that, uh, which meets my criteria of being something I'm really passionate about because I think everybody, whether you work at Facebook or McDonald's or the Department of Sanitation, you should love your job and, and love your contribution to whatever that company's or organization's mission is mm -hmm. as much as the next person. Um, and then the bias work has been especially gratifying. I mean, it it's clearly not an issue that's that's going to solve itself. Right. And I love helping people. I mean, I'm white and male, so I'm kind of at the top of the food chain. Right. If you look at you know corporate America, but I don't want. I want to help other white men, especially see this movement to level the playing field as not. Uh, a case of them losing something, but as a case of everybody else having access to the same playing field. And I've what I found is a strength that I didn't know I had until I worked on this program with Cheryl is that I'm actually really good at talking about that, especially to uh, skeptical audiences or people that think that diversity training is bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, I found that I've been able to really connect with that content and present it in a way that that, that resonates with people. And so I'm doing yeah. a lot of that work. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when I asked a question or even questions prior to that, I can tell a lot of your decision-making process has been thought through. You, you'll analyze what will work for me, but I think the underlying yeah. thing that I'm hearing is what will work for capital me. And so knowing yeah. yourself, knowing what's going to work. And now how do you recommend people uncover that? Because here's the yep. thing. We get a lot of feedback. I've done career coaching. I get people reaching out to me about this. And it's often this underlying fear in some sort that yep. is driving decisions. And that's how we're wired. Yep. So yep. one of the things I know you talk a lot about is this being authentic in the workplace, but for yourself. How do we do that while also, yep. again, saying, look, you know, I have to have a job. I have to support family. This all sounds great and rainbows and butterflies, but 
how do I do it in the real world? So I, it's interesting because when I, I was one of the speaker, well, I owned orientation at Facebook for over two years and I spoke in almost every orientation, uh, the whole time that I was there. So thousands and thousands of interns and full-time employees got, you know, the talk from me that over the years kind of morphed and shifted, but was always about, you know, being mindful of your contribution to or your detraction from the culture at large, which everybody, I would ask them, if the culture played a role in you accepting our job offer, please raise your hand. And they always did. Great. Then if nobody raises their hand next week, it's going to be partially your fault. And if everybody raises their hand next week, it's going to be partially your fault. Everything matters. So getting them to understand that there's no such thing as you know, the person that kind of hides away and just works and doesn't have any impact on the people around them. Uh, so that was kind of the, me- the big mega message. The second message was, you're going to have a lot more fun and find a lot more meaning in working here. And so will the people around you with you, if you're just yourself. And I would kind of make light of it. I would say, you know, if you get wasted on Friday night and somebody posts funny pictures of you falling out of a cab, like we want to see that, that, that will help us. <laughs> understand a little bit more about you and it might explain why you're a little sluggish on Monday morning. Mm. But joking aside, what I was getting at was you have that life, whether you talk about it or not. And, you know, Brene Brown has a great quote about some of the pendulum swinging too far with authenticity. It's not an excuse to overshare. And I oversharing is not the point. The point is and there's a chapter on this in, in the book that was actually one of the most controversial because people really pushed back on me as they were reading it in editing, is that not everybody's going to like you. And that's not the point. Uh, not everybody is going to think that your authentic self is amazing. And that's not the point. The point about authenticity is not approval from other people. The point about authenticity is feeling that you can show up and be who you are and be successful. And the people that are going to like you are going to like you. And the people that aren't going to like you aren't going to like you. And that's not yours to worry about. Yours is to worry about, am I contributing in meaningful, positive ways? Am I operating with good intent? And when you look at, to tie this to bias, when you talk about diversity and inclusion training, a lot of people get really hung up on diversity, right? When you, when Facebook or Apple or Google releases their diversity report, what they're just, they're only talking about representation, right? We have this many black people. We have this many white people. We have this many women. We have this many men. And that's important, but it doesn't matter if you have diversity, if they can't be themselves when they're there. So if you're a black female software engineer and you get hired at a company like Facebook or Google or Apple or Microsoft, And the only way that you can be successful in that company is to behave like a white male engineer, then it doesn't matter that you're a diverse person because you're not actually contributing authentically the diversity that your experience brings. And so there's not just a personal ROI or a personal responsibility to being yourself. It actually is one of the reasons that companies hire you. So if you, if you're brought in, uh, not just because you're qualified, but because you also bring a diverse perspective that your race or your gender or your age or whatever brings, and you don't contribute that because you're afraid of being judged or that people won't like you, then you're not actually reaching your own potential and the company is not reaching its potential through you. So 
I get it. It's scary as shit, right? Like it's scary to like, oh God, if people know X, Y, or Z about me, um, it's going to be terrible. And as a coaching device, I would always use the, I love using worst case scenarios to help people that are being drama right, be right. less dramatic. Right. I just say, yeah, you're right. If they knew that about you, it would kill you. <laughs> um, or if you apply for that job, it's, you're going to die on the spot. And of course, like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, but when you push a little deeper, it's like, well, you're acting like that's what's going to happen. So if that worst case scenario is not on the table, then what really is and how can you how can you find a way to maybe work through it? And I think we we love going to extreme examples to disprove an idea. Like if if I'm going to be authentic, I'm going to fly every single freak flag that I have at work. And right. That's not what it means. It just means that if I you know, am of a certain age and a certain background and I grew up in a certain place that I am going to contribute how that has shaped me as a person in the work that I do in an authentic way. The thing that strikes me is you mentioned even at, at Facebook, when you would ask this question, how many people came here because of the culture? A lot of people raised their hand. I get that. Yeah. That's why we come to companies sometimes. I always struggle with, yeah, I know that you kind of care about me, but I'm one in 2,000, 4,000, 10,000, 100,000, and really you care about making money. And so right. I could never bridge that gap very well on, yeah. you know, authentically caring about your people. Yeah. And I think it's because we like being wired, especially in a tech company and especially in a software tech company where the core of your business is literally ones and zeros. Right. It's either a one or a zero, right? And so I think we tell ourselves that it is a zero-sum game. Either I can be authentic or I can be successful. Either the company cares about me or the company cares about making money. Um, and in reality, of course, those things can all coexist. Um, and I think it, it's easier if we tell ourselves that it's a one or a zero because then there's only two options. Mm. Um, but if we acknowledge the fact that, you know, because again, think think bigger picture, not lowercase me, but bigger case me of what authenticity requires. If you're going to tell everybody that being authentic and just being themselves is is going to make the company stronger, at the same time, you also have to say, like you just said, you're one of 25,000 people. So we got 25,000 people here being themselves. Right. There's going to be clashes. There's going to be confrontation. There's going to be curiosity. Um, people are going to ask you if you come to work with blue hair, why is your hair blue? That doesn't mean they're not accepting you. That doesn't mean that they're rejecting you from the company. It means that they don't understand you. And maybe you should be willing to, if you're going to be, uh, somebody like me who likes to stand out, you're probably going to get some questions and some scrutiny along the way. And that is the price of admission. And I think one of the things that culturally we are airing, in today's climate is that if anybody questions anything about you, that they hate you right. or that they're bullying you or that they don't want you to be yourself. When in reality, and again, this goes to the work that we do with bias, our brain doesn't notice anything consciously that meets our stereotypical expectations. It's only when people stand out that our brain takes notice. And it's natural if your brain is taking notice of something that eventually it's going to engage your mouth. <laughs> and yeah. hopefully if the training works, instead of issuing a judgment, you'll ask a question. But we, we have such a strange relationship right now. And I think especially if you look at younger 
younger workers. On one hand, they're saying, you know, don't you dare label me or put me in a box. At the same time, they hashtag and label the shit out of themselves constantly. Um, and they, they don't see the duality of that message. On one hand, you don't want to be put into a box that says, if you are this, you are only this. But at the same time, there are certain labels that help people understand how to engage with us, and especially when you're, again, filled in with a company full of people that are all trying to be themselves, that your brain is naturally going to say, tell me more about this, because I don't understand it. doesn't mean I hate it. Mm. doesn't mean I don't think you're worth being here, but I don't understand it, and I'd like to know more. And I think as that's one of the growing pains is more companies try to be more welcoming of all different types of people. They're also going to have to help people understand how to talk about those differences in ways that don't, you know, turn into World War Three. Yeah. Well, and actually, you mentioned something very unique there. I think a unique take on it, which I've never looked at. What you said is essentially, you know, reminding yourself when people ask you questions of things that stick out, maybe it's the blue hair. Yep. Uh, that might be a sign that they're aware of the biases they might hold and instead yep. are trying to get curious about them. What do you talk about cultivating curiosity? What do you think the way to do that and the reason to do that primarily in a nutshell is? Well, I think just when you know more, you can do more. So selfishly, if you want to be able to do more things with more people more effectively, you have to be curious. You have to know more. Mm. And if you if you look at our profession, uh, teaching in particular, facilitating one of the big kind of fads five, 10 years ago was, oh, we need leaders teaching, right? Like it's not enough to be an executive. Now you have to be a teacher internally, mm. which goes against strengths theory 100% because just because you're a great leader doesn't mean you're going to be great at teaching other people how to lead. Right. Um, but it also kind of stuck out to me is, God, I would much rather work for a leader who was just an openly nerdy learner mm -hmm. um, and would talk about what he or she was learning. Um, I would find that entirely more valuable and inspiring than, you know, making sure that a senior manager was teaching five internal classes a year. And it's one of the things that I really love about Mark Zuckerberg. Um, when I was, I think it was probably 2015, Mark does a personal challenge every year. Um, and it's usually, well, it's always about growth and learning, but in this particular year in 2015, his personal challenge for himself was to read a book every other week. And I thought, wow, he's yeah. <laughs> the CEO of Facebook. You know, he's a new father, a new husband, and that any one of those things would be enough for most of us to say, I don't have time to read anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but he prioritized it and he kind of made it like, Oprah's book club, <laughs> he would publish what he was reading and he would write about it on Facebook for people external to the company to read about it. But internally, if you read the book as well, he hosted kind of a Mark's book club meeting in his conference room every Monday, every other Monday at four o'clock. And if you read the book, you could come talk about it. And I just remember thinking that somebody that, that is constantly curious about how things work, which is kind of an engineer's mantra, um, is always going to win. And because nobody knows everything, the only thing that you can try to do if you really want to learn and grow is just be curious and constantly ask, why is that that way? Why is that that way? Um, and I've, 
I just, I don't know any senior leader that I respect that's really good at what he or she does uh, that isn't just insatiably curious. And I think with bias, the only way that you're going to get better at relating to an increasingly connected and therefore complicated world is to have a lot more questions about why people are the way they are than preconceived notions. Mm, great, great point there. Well, last thing I want to ask you is, again, your your new book is This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto. What compelled you to write it? And the reason is because I know we said off air after you left Facebook, the only thing you knew you wanted to do was write a book. And yeah. given how thoughtful you are, I know that the reason wasn't because you felt you had to write a book to get speaking gigs or whatever, right? No. The things that the things that 80% of books are written for these days, you know, yeah. the book is the new calling card type stuff. So yep. I know that you had a deeper philosophical reason. What was it and what do you hope it changes out in the world? So great question. And I, you're right. I didn't write it for that reason. If anything, I wanted less work when I left Facebook, not more. <laughs> um, but I think the main, the main thing that jumped out at me was it didn't matter what company they were coming from or what conference I was speaking at. As soon as I started talking about things like authenticity, about owning your role, the, one of the first chapters in the book is about what I call organizational Stockholm syndrome, which is essentially taking all of the things that you hated about the company that you just left, though passively or quietly or unconsciously played a role in, and then trying to recreate that environment in your new company and therefore making it exactly as bad as the other one was. Like when I would talk about those things, I, I mean, as you can probably see, I'm pretty plain spoken. I'm pretty practical. I like getting straight to the, to the meat of something that really resonated with people. And what I kept hearing over and over again was that that voice isn't really out there right now. Um, and it, I kind of got back to my early days working at USAA where the feedback that I would get was that I could take something that was really complicated and break it down and make it simple. And so I picked the, the book is divided into different topics that I think over the course of my career, I've figured out ways to make them, you know, really straightforward and practical. And similar to what we were just talking about, I don't pretend to have all of the answers because every person that reads that book is going to have a different set of life experiences. What I do think I have and what any good coach would have or facilitator would have is questions and, you know, questions to get people to stop, get out of autopilot mode and really reflect. And when I looked at the feedback that I would get from people that took classes with me or from conventions or conferences that I spoke at was essentially, please write this down because it's practical and it's straightforward and it's unique and it will stand out. And like I said earlier, standing out is something that I've gotten pretty comfortable with. It's not always fun and easy. It's not always butterflies and rainbows, right. but I think it, it does provide a voice, especially because the overall theme is ownership and personal responsibility. And you cannot control your boss. You cannot control the company. You cannot control the economy. All of the things that I had really struggled with learning myself that I couldn't control. Um, and you either take one fork in the road, which is to say, well, I can't control anything, so I guess I just have to deal with whatever life throws my way. Or you look at it and say, well, I can't control these things, but I can control these. And I'm going to focus on the things I can't control instead. And so that's 
pretty much what the book is. So much easier said than done. <laughs> yes, it is. But, and, and that's the thing. I don't, I don't make it, I don't put, put it across as though any of it is easy. It's oh, sure. hard. All of it is hard. And I think that's the other part of the message that, that a lot of people that write books, especially if they're trying to help people improve, that they, they gloss over the fact that, you know, like authenticity it's hard. Mm-hmm. People aren't going to like you and mm-hmm. that's going to suck. And you know, when you're afraid of doing something and you take a risk and it doesn't work out, that sucks. Failing mm-hmm. is awful. Mm-hmm. And yet we all do all of those things anyway. So if you change the way that you look at them and you focus on again, what can I learn from it and what can I can control, then it gets a little, it's never going to get easy, but it will get easier. Easier. Well, I yep. love that. Mike, thank you so much for your time. The book is This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto. Last thing I want to ask, anywhere else people can find you, read about you. What are you doing? I mean, Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> uh, how um, ironic. I, how ironic. <laughs> it's funny. It's because when I say Facebook, everybody always expects me to say LinkedIn. And I'm certainly on LinkedIn as well. But I, yeah, I've I've always posted fairly publicly on Facebook um, I think it's, you know, part of me walking the talk with authenticity was saying that you could actually post really personal stuff publicly and it wouldn't kill you. And as I live to tell the story, you can find me on Facebook. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, again, thank you for your time. Really appreciate of course. it. Of course. And on this Monday, go enjoy the dentist. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mike Runglin. Mike's book, This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto, is available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. As always, if you decide to purchase the book on Amazon, or if you decide to purchase anything on Amazon, please make sure you do so through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any and all purchases you make through that link come at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you'd like other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're looking for a catalog of all the old episodes or just want to sign up for the newsletter, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.